purposes of God. Also have a funny way of being the most challenging promises we find in the Word of God. A great example, I think, of this phenomenon is found in the Gospel of John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings his, out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Well, the comforting aspect of this classic illustration that our Lord gave to us is pretty easy to spot. The Lord tells us that He is our Good Shepherd. And as a Good Shepherd does, He knows His flock. He knows and cares deeply for each and every one of us. But the challenging side of that is equally evident in this passage. The challenging side is this. Although the sheep will hear the shepherd's voice, they will also hear the voice of of strangers. They will hear the voice of those who do not mean them good, but harm, who are not looking out for their best interests, but are looking to get them away from the flock for the purpose of destruction. Oh, that voice might be the voice of sin. It could be the voice of selfishness. Yeah, it could be the voice of even Satan himself. But the fact of the matter is, the shepherd still speaks. And we as sheep need to be able to grow in our walk with the Lord and get to the place where we recognize the difference between the shepherd's voice and the voice of a stranger. Well, how do you get to the place where you can truly recognize when the Lord Himself is speaking to you? I mean, we hear people talk about receiving a word from the Lord or that the Lord spoke X and such to their heart. But how can you discern and learn to recognize, and learn it to enter into the beautiful intimacy that comes from being a contented sheep who recognizes the Master's voice. Well, tonight, in our continuing study in the book of 1 Samuel, as we get into 1 Samuel chapter 3, we're going to be going through a study that we could call How to Listen to God. We're going to see three very important aspects of entering into the fullness of relationship, the fullness of intimacy that comes when we learn to recognize the voice of the Lord as He speaks to us today. First, we're going to see a section of Scripture tonight that we could call the reception of God's voice. We could call this the position that we need to get into in order to be able to hear the Lord when He speaks to us. And we'll discover a little bit about where we need to be in our lives to hear the Lord as He speaks. Secondly, we're going to see the recognition of God's voice. How we can get to the place where we're perceptive enough to be able to hear the voice of the Lord and to be able to distinguish the voice of the Lord from the clever counterfeits that are out there surrounding us in the world today. And finally, we'll see a passage of Scripture we could call the responsibility of hearing God's voice. We'll discover that when God speaks to us, most often He does not just speak to us for our benefit, but rather He gives us the responsibility of sharing and relating those truths to others. We'll discover how we can pass on the blessings of hearing the voice of God to those who desperately need His words of comfort, His words of encouragement, and dare I even say, His words of correction and discipline in a godly way. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to work upon our hearts in such a way that we do develop this very essential dimension of what really amounts to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, learning to hear His voice. Father, we thank You that, Lord, You are a loving Father and You call us to be in a living relationship with You. And just like any other relationship that we enter into is virtually impossible without communication, so, Lord, a relationship with You is based upon biblical, sound, scriptural communication. 
But it's also a personal thing, Lord. You speak to our hearts. You speak to our minds. Sometimes You will even give us words from other brothers and sisters about our lives that we need to heed. But Lord, we don't want to be uncritical spiritual consumers. We don't want to just buy into anything because it has a thus saith the Lord attached or or a few Scriptures perhaps stapled to it in an out-of-context fashion. We pray, Father, that You would give us the wisdom, give us the insight to be able to recognize You, to be able to relate to You, and to be able to rely on You more and more deeply because we have learned exactly what it means to hear Your voice with a willing heart ready to obey. Thank You, Father, for this privilege. Help us now just to walk alongside Samuel as you let him into this blessing. And so may we be blessed as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to bring you up to speed in terms of where we are in the book of 1 Samuel, if you were with us in our study last week, you discovered that just because you're in a spiritual setting doesn't necessarily mean you are being ministered to in a scripturally spiritual manner. We saw last week, for instance, that one of the huge problems besetting the people of Israel during the time of the writing of 1 Samuel was the fact that the priesthood had been compromised. Right along with the rest of the people that we would tend to run into on a man-on-the-street basis during that time, so God's own spiritual leaders had gotten off track. The two sons of the high priest, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, had turned the priesthood into basically an avenue to gratify their own sensual and fleshly desires. The people were being oppressed, they were being ripped off, and God was taking notice. That corruption was rampant, but that corruption was going to be corrected. God sent a prophet to Eli with a pretty heavy message. The priesthood was going to be taken from his family and given to a priest who would not fail God. In verse 35 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see this promise, this prophet relating this, the words of God to Eli said, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. See, there was going to be a change. You can fool people. You can get over on people. You can abuse people in a spiritual way, but understand, God is keeping score. And the results of this game were in. And the movement away from the priesthood of Eli and his two sons was about to begin in a radical way. And that's where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. There we read, Then the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Now, it's very interesting to me that that kind of a notation would be attached to the scriptural account of what is about to transpire. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. In other words, there were not an awful lot of words from prophets being given to the people. And even on a more simple and basic note, Remember, this is the time of the judges, the very tail end of all of this. If you're with us in our study of judges, you know that there was a philosophy that dominated Israeli society at that time. That there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, if you are doing what's right in your own eyes, why in the world do you need the Scriptures? If God really hasn't spoken, if it's just a question of what seems right to us, if you are going by the famous words, to thine own self be true, well then why do you even need to be true to God? And so I think being described here was not just a time where there weren't an awful lot of prophets on the scene. I really believe that a time was being described here when the Word of God in a scroll-like form was gathering dust in people's houses, just like the family Bible does on pious coffee tables across America in our day. You know, I can't help but think that we can relate to these conditions. The Word of the Lord was rare in those days. Well, we might find ourselves saying, how in the world can you say the Word of the Lord is rare? I mean, we can turn on Christian radio and hear the Word of God all day long. We can get on the Internet and go to this side and that side and the other and see the Word of God not only presented to us, 
but beautifully explained. How can you say the Word of the Lord is rare? Well, it's out there, folks, but is it being accessed? Is the average person falling more and more in love with the Word of God? You know, in evangelical circles, it seems like there is a move away from being content to faithfully relating God's Word to things that really resemble more than anything else a total quality management approach to growing the church. I mean, people are looking for results. They're looking for people in the seats rather than being faithful to proclaim God's Word. And as such, I really do believe that in churches across this country, there's a famine of the Word. It would probably shock you to find out how many times when I stand in the back and greet people after our Sunday services, when new people come up to me, they are just stunned and they say, do you guys really go through the Bible like this every week? And I say, yeah, yeah, we do. And they go, really? I've never seen anything like this. And I say to them, well, what kind of churches have you been hanging out in? Well, I don't really need to ask. I've seen some of those churches. Maybe you've gone to some of those churches where you were the only one who showed up with a Bible and pretty soon you figured out why because it was a Bible-optional proceeding. Maybe there were a couple of verses thrown in in sort of a fortune cookie-like manner and a nice little message. But the Word of God was set aside. I really believe that the Word of God is becoming more and more rare in our day and age, a real commitment to the Word, a real commitment to verse-by-verse teaching of the Word, a real commitment to giving people the whole counsel of the Word of God. Really, these conditions were prophesied for us. Fascinating Scripture is found in the book of Amos, chapter 8, and verse 11. I can't help but think that this may be a prophecy that has fulfillment in our day. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Wow, what a prophecy. May we not be found neglecting the word of God. May we not be found promoting a famine for God's Word. I mean, it's very interesting that the Lord would liken the consumption of God's Word to the consumption of regular food. Have you ever stopped to think about that? What if your diet of physical food was done in your life on a par with your diet of spiritual food, of the Word of God? I mean, could you imagine what it would be like if you ate like oftentimes we consume the Word? I mean, if you just decided that Sunday was your day to eat and you're going to eat like a pig, you know, for three or four hours in the morning and you're just going to, you know, go to one of those all-you-can-stand kind of buffets and just chow down as much as you can and people say, wow, you're really making a glut in yourself. You go, oh, you don't understand. I'm not going to be able to eat again until next Wednesday. And then I'm going to get another little snack. And that's going to hold me over till next Saturday night or Sunday morning. If you did that, I know if I did that, well, I'll tell you what, I start getting a little lightheaded and dizzy if I go two hours without eating. Could you imagine going three or four days? Yet how often do we find ourselves with our Bibles closed for just those durations of time? Well, in the time of Samuel, like our day, the Word of the Lord was rare. There was no widespread revelation. But that was about to change. Verse 2 says, And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, And when his eyes had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, and before the lap of God went out in the tabernacle of God where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down to sleep, that the Lord called Samuel and he answered, Here am I. Now here we see breaking into this revelationless barren landscape, this spotlight of God's truth. And notice the... Uh, backdrop, the, the scenario into which this revelation of God comes, is there a reason why this famine of the Word was brought in the land? I think there was, and I think it kind of got laid at the feet of the spiritual leadership of Israel. Notice we are told that Eli was lying down in his place, and we're told in verse 3, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of, of the Lord, where the ark of God was, Samuel was lying down to sleep. That's when the Lord spoke to him. Now, very interesting, it talks about the lamp of God going out in the tabernacle. If you take a look at Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 and 21, the laws that God had established 
for the lampstand in the tabernacle, and that's that menorah-like lampstand that you've probably seen in front of Jewish synagogues. There were strict instructions given that that lampstand was never to go out. And there was a reason for that. That lampstand represented the fact that Israel was to be God's light to the world. And if you're going to be the light of the world, you can't have an on-off switch because you never know when someone's watching your life. Well, that picture of Israel being the light of the world had been sorely compromised under the priesthood of Eli. We see that Eli was not only lying down on the job physically, he was not only being derelict in his duties by allowing his two sons, who were really off the wall, to be abusing people in the name of religion, but now we see that he couldn't even be bothered to do the basic duties that a priest of God should be about the business of doing, making sure that light kept burning. And oh, isn't there an insight here for us? You know, God's basic purpose for having you and I here on this earth is the same purpose that He had that lampstand in the tabernacle for. You and I are the fulfillment of what that symbolism was all about. Remember what Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket, but they put it on the lampstand that all in the house may see its light. That's what Jesus said about you and me. Now, notice He didn't say, I want you to try to be the light of the world. He said, you are it. As far as this world understanding the Gospel of Jesus Christ, God has no plan B apart from you and using you and I for that purpose. But oftentimes, we, almost like Eli, let that light go out. We really don't care too much about being around the business of sharing the good news of Christ with others. I mean, there's just astounding statistics to me about how when a person comes to Christ within two years, they effectively lose every non-Christian relationship that they have. And there's almost this tendency, oh, you know, the world out there, it's big, it's bad, it's icky, you know, there's all these temptations out there. I'm just going to stay here in the church where it's nice and safe. Well, we can stay in the church where it's nice and safe, but in essence, what have we done? If the only time our light shines is when we're together as believers, well, instead of being the light of the world, we've become a mutual light admiration society. Oh, look at your light. Isn't that a beautiful light? Oh, yes, but uh, mine, you see this? I've got this lampshade on my light. And, you know, we kind of get into this sort of comparison kind of thing of looking at our spirituality while we're in church. And, hey, it's great to be spiritual while you're in church. It's great to let the light of Jesus shine while you're in church. You have no idea how many non-believers might be sitting right next to you while you're in church. So it's great to let that light shine. But guess what? Light is most needed, is most necessary, not inside the church, but outside the church. I mean, it would be like having a lighthouse to warn ships of a rocky point, to stay away from them, to stay off the rocks. But to say, well, we really don't want that light to shine out, you know, like to a ship or anything. Let's just put a cover over that, that big lighthouse and let's all just kind of admire the light from the inside. Oh, let's not do that. That's exactly what was going on with Eli. And the light was going out. There was faithlessness that led to that famine of the Word. You know, it is so important for us to understand Another key insight into hearing the voice of God is this. Why wasn't God speaking to His people? Why was the Word of the Lord so rare and revelations infrequent? I'll tell you why. Because God's people weren't being faithful to the revelation that they had. And you know, I run into people sometimes who go, wow, man, I would just really love it if the Lord would bring a prophecy to my life. Or if there would be a word of knowledge about what's going on with me. And oh, wouldn't that be an awesome and a wonderful thing? And I'll tell you what, I've received a few of those. A couple have been absolutely life-changing to me. And it's a wonderful thing when it happens. But I guarantee you, it will never happen to you if you're looking for that as a substitute for your daily time in the Word of God. You see, God wants you to grow up. He wants you to have the basics under your belt. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, very important exhortation given to us if we really want to hear the voice of the Lord in our lives. Hebrews, chapter 5, and verse 12 says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Now, I know a lot of Christians that are running around looking for some kind of supernatural manifestation of a word of prophecy or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. But I'm here to tell you something. God will not do that until you're faithful to the revelation that you've got. And there's a reason for that. You see, unless you know what this Word says, what God has definitely revealed to us through His divinely inspired Word, if someone comes up to you with kind of that ethereal look on their face saying, Oh, thus saith the Lord, God is calling you to uh, get involved in this business venture over here and to invest your money there. You're going to be going, Oh, well, they said, Thus saith the Lord. And boy, you know, they even threw a few King James words in there. So I imagine it's the Lord, right? Hey, it may not be. But you're never going to know unless you've got your foundation set on the truths of God's Word. Eli wasn't being faithful with the revelation that he had. So it's no wonder that revelation in general and the Word of the Lord was rare. There was no widespread revelation. But that was going to change. Notice that before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 3, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down to sleep, that the Lord called Samuel and he answered, Here I am. Now, I think it's very interesting. God had a message to bring to His people. Who does He go to to deliver that message? Not the high priest Eli, the guy we would expect to receive a message like this. Not Eli's sons, the ones who were sort of doing the administration of what was going on among God's people at that time, the people with a position, the people with prominence, he comes to this boy, Samuel. Now, you need to understand something about Samuel's age at this time. The Hebrew word that describes Samuel as a boy here gives an indication that he is an older child at this point. The Jewish historian Josephus says that Samuel was 12 when the word of the Lord came to him. And, you know, I've read some commentators who get into an interesting discussion about the age of accountability and, you know, how old a person really has to be to enter into a relationship with Christ. And some people say from this that the age of accountability is 12, that once you hit 12, you are responsible for yourself spiritually and you have to make your own decision about Christ. Still others would say, well, you know, when the, the people of Israel uh, had uh, disobeyed God in the wilderness, God said that all those under the age of 20 would be able to enter the land, but anybody older than that would not. So they say that 20 is the age of accountability. Still others would say, well, a Levite entered into service at the age of 25. So they say that's the age of accountability. And still others would say, well, you know, a priest would not be able to minister before the age of 30. So they say that's the age of accountability. And I imagine if you kind of kept going on through the Scriptures, you could find a way of saying the age of accountability was probably roughly about the same time you qualify for Social Security. When's the age of accountability? I really don't know. It's different, I think, for different people. It's just when a person is able to respond to the call of the Spirit in their life. Now, notice something. Samuel responds to the Lord. And I, I think this is kind of fascinating because there was a reason that God spoke to Samuel. And I think it's revealed to us in Samuel's response to the call of God. Now, Samuel doesn't realize this is God yet, as we're going to discover in just a moment. But notice something. When God calls him, the first thing that Samuel says is, here I am. Now realize something. Samuel is laying down at this point. He is sawing logs. He is having a few Z's here. If you come to me, and I'm in a deep sleep, and this is getting into the wee small hours in the morning, and it probably was, because again, the oil in the lamp in the tabernacle was starting to burn out at that point. It had been burning for quite a while. If you come to me at that point and say, Scott, my first reaction is going to be, do you know what time it is? <laughs> Samuel's reaction is, here I am. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to serve. What can I do? Samuel had a servant's heart. Samuel wasn't the type to question why. His was but to do and not die. 
to pardon, to, to paraphrase the old uh, poem. Samuel was a doer. He was a guy who was always looking to do something constructive. And I think the Lord really honored that spirit in him. In fact, I think that whole idea of a willing heart as a key to being able to hear the voice of God is really driven home in one of Samuel's most famous statements he made. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, Samuel said this, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. (laughs) What Samuel would say to us is, don't tell me about your walk with God. Show me. You know, don't tell me how spiritual you are. Demonstrate that spirituality by walking in the love of Jesus Christ. You know, it's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. But let me tell you something else. An example is worth 10,000 words. A living example of someone who is simply willing to do whatever needs to be done. And I think it's that willing heart that opened the door for Samuel to be tuned into God. And you know, I think this is a real key to hearing the voice of God in our lives. Why do so few believers really hear God's voice on a regular basis? Why do they really have so few encounters where, where God speaks to their heart? I don't think it's because God wouldn't like to speak to us. I think it's because we're just not tuned in. We're just not tuned in to His frequency. You know, when I I was uh, young, I got involved with ham radio. And in ham radio, one of the things that you do, it's almost like fishing electronically. I guess that's part of the fun. You, You just turn on the radio and you dial to a certain band and you get on your microphone and you say these words, CQ, CQ. Well, that is abbreviation for I'm seeking you. To whom it may concern, anybody out there, would you please respond? If you can hear me, please respond. I remember one night when I was in my early teens, I got up at about three or four in the morning and I couldn't sleep, so I got on my ham radio and I put out this call, CQ, and this this voice comes back and he gave a call sign that I had never heard before. And I thought somebody was pulling my leg. And when he told me that his name was Jesus, I really thought that he was pulling my leg. Well, it turned out his name was really Jesus and he was in Cuba. But how did I get in touch with Jesus in Cuba? I was on the right frequency. He was on the right frequency. When you're on the right frequency together, there's contact, there's communication. In the same way, how do we get in touch with Jesus spiritually? You've got to be on the right frequency. You've got to be on God's wavelength. You've got to be at that place where your heart is tuned to be in tune with the heart of God. Otherwise, there's just going to be all kinds of static on the line. God may be speaking, but your receiver just isn't picking up the signal. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, I think we see this principle beautifully explained for us. Jeremiah, chapter 29 And verse 11 and following says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You want to hear from God? Make sure your heart's in the right place. Not that your head's in the right place, you've read all the books. Not that your seat's in the right place, that you happen to be someplace where you hear that people get words from the Lord. Make sure your heart's in the right place. See, Eli was in the right place to hear from God, but he didn't hear because he didn't have that willing heart ready to obey. And so Samuel had that going for him. But as we're going to see, there was still some interference that had to be cleared up before God could really speak to the heart of this budding prophet for God's people. Look at verse 5. It says, So he ran to Eli after hearing the Lord calling him and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now, at this point, I bet Samuel is thinking, Someone's pulling my leg. That Hophni and Phineas probably got that ventriloquism course from that comic book they were reading, and they're really just kind of running me ragged here. 
Because I could have sworn I heard Eli calling me twice and both times he's on logs over here. And I bet Eli's getting a little tired of this at this point. Well, that's one of the glories of the monsoon season around my house. You, you want to get a good, solid night's sleep, please don't be at my house during monsoon season because both my kids are really afraid of thunder. And as soon as the thunder starts rolling in over the Catalina Mountains, I can guarantee I'm going to hear, first of all, a door open down the hall and then the pitter-patter of little feet. And then they always stand outside the door for about 10, 15 seconds or so, sort of working up the nerve. And then the door opens. And the next thing I know, I'm staring kind of eye-to-eye with this little person who's looking at me going, I'm scared. I can't help but think that Eli was probably in my usual position there. He's opening up one eye going, Kid, if I'd called you, I know I would have called you. Go back to bed and leave me alone. But something big was going on here. Something far more important than Eli's night of sleep. Verse 6 says, And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. I imagine at this point he's kind of like, I know he's going to be mad, but what can I do? And he answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Now here we see Samuel's confusion. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He did not yet have a personal relationship with God. Now, isn't that kind of a stunning observation? I mean, when we take a look at Samuel, if you ever would have taken a look at somebody who maybe if they were even here in this church would have the absolute perfect pedigree as a believer, what would you look for? Well, you'd probably look for the same things that Samuel had going for him. Look at his parents. I mean, his mom prays prayers that people write down and preserve. Boy, it's divinely inspired. Yeah, surely someone who came from a family like that would know the Lord. Boy, he dresses like he knows the Lord. You know, he's wearing that little priestly outfit all the time. And his mama brings him a new one every year. And boy, he looks the part, you know. I mean, surely if you look the part, you've got to know the Lord. I mean, beyond that, beyond having the family and beyond dressing right, look at what he does. He spends all of his time hanging out around the things of God. He is always there when the tabernacle's open. Surely, someone who's always at church knows the Lord. I mean, we can even take it a step further. Surely an individual who not only comes from the right family and not only dresses in the appropriate way, looks good on the outside, not only is the person who is always there around spiritual things, but the person who is actively involved in spiritual things. Surely a person like that knows the Lord. No. Samuel had all of those things going for him. But the Scripture said he did not yet know the Lord. What's the difference between doing all those right things, having the right spiritual pedigree, having the right spiritual activities and pursuits, and a real relationship with God? One thing. A personal contact with God. A personal relationship with the Lord. Understand this. You can come from the right family and still not have a personal relationship with God. Understand, you can look the part. You can dress like a born-again Christian. You can have your living epistles t-shirt on or, or whatever you might be wearing and still not know the Lord. You can be at church all the time and still not know the Lord. I mean, I love that old uh, saying that, that being in church no more makes you a Christian than living in a garage makes you a Chevy. donut stand makes you a cop. Neither of those are really necessarily true. And just because you're involved, just because you sit on a committee, just because you go to meetings, just because you help the church to do certain things, doesn't mean you know the Lord. Boy, one of the most sobering statements I think Jesus Christ ever made is found in the book of Matthew chapter 7. 
At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this statement, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the ultimate issue on Judgment Day isn't going to be who you knew here on earth. It isn't going to be how you looked. It isn't going to be where you hung out on Sundays or even Wednesday nights or Saturday nights. It's not even going to be the things that you did among God's people. It's going to be, did you know Jesus? Did you really know Him? Did you really have a personal relationship with Him? You know, this is real sobering stuff in Samuel because it tells us something else that's very, very important to understand. God has no grandchildren. Just because Hannah knew the Lord didn't mean that Samuel knew the Lord. Just because Eli knew the Lord didn't mean his sons were going to know the Lord. Each and every one of us must make a personal decision whether we want to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ or not. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 12, but to as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become sons of God, even those who called on His name. What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? It's not how you look. It's not how you dress. It's not what you do on Sundays or Wednesdays or Saturday nights. It's have you called on the name of the Lord. Have you called on Him? Have you said to Jesus, I want you as my Savior. I want you in my heart. I want you in my life. All this other stuff, having a great Christian family, wonderful. Hey, you know, kind of dressing the part and, you know, looking like a Christian would look. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, being at church, being involved in things at church, all those things are wonderful, but they are no substitute for a heart relationship with God. Samuel didn't know the Lord at this point. But I love this. God took the initiative to call him, even though he didn't know the Lord. And I think it's really kind of sad that someone could hang around the tabernacle of God for 12 years without someone finally bringing up the issue, you know, do you really know God? Maybe that's because when the word of the Lord is rare, so are those whose hearts and lives are transformed by the word of the Lord. It's also a rare thing. Remember what James said, receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. Again, Samuel needed to know the Lord. He did not know the Lord at this point, but he needed to know the Lord. And God was going to do an amazing work of bringing him into that relationship. Verse 8 says, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, if we're going to hear from God, understand something. Conversion is absolutely necessary. You know, unless you are born again, Jesus said in John chapter 3, born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven, let alone hear the voice of God. So Samuel needed to come into that relationship with the Lord, but notice something else he needed. Not just conversion, but a word of correction from someone who had been around the block a few times. Eli realized what was going on. Samuel had no clue. Eli realized that God was speaking to this boy. And so Eli gives him a very important piece of advice that we need to take seriously if we, again, want to tune into that right frequency and hear God when He is sending out His seek you to us. The very important thing to have in place are those simple words. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now notice what was being taught to Samuel here. When God speaks to us, you need to understand, God will not speak to us if we still reserve the right of first refusal on what He says to us. 
You ever gotten into that point? Oh, Lord, I really want to hear your voice. But I only want to hear your voice if you'll confirm my prejudices. I only want to hear your voice if your voice makes me feel nice and warm and tingly inside. I only want to hear your voice if I walk away feeling like, gee, all is right with the world. I only want to hear your voice if there's no real obligation. If you tell me to do something and still say, well, maybe, maybe not. Key to hearing the voice of God. I think a real distinction between those who often have the Lord speak to their hearts, who often hear and perceive God when He speaks to them, is that willing heart again, that servant's heart. You know, in the book of James, we are told in no uncertain terms how important that is. In James chapter 1, we see the Bible's instructions for us receiving God's wisdom directly from Him. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, if you get into a situation that, well, I'd really like to hear from the Lord, but I'm really not 100% committed to doing His will, God's not really going to be able to speak. In fact, God will just continue to work in your life to get you to that place where you have that heart of obedience. And so very key to hearing the voice of God is having that willingness, that servant's heart. And in verse 10, we see that Samuel followed through on this. Then the Lord came and stood and called at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Now this is, as they say in the movies, the start of a beautiful friendship. Because once Samuel came to that point of saying, Lord, I want to hear your voice. And I want to hear with that willing heart, ready to obey. Then God was going to speak to Samuel. And Samuel was going to embark on a prophetic ministry that would change the course of the entire nation of Israel. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were going to expect God to speak to you, wouldn't you think the first big message that you'd receive from the Lord might be, well, an easy one? Kind of a warm-up message? Like, Samuel, go tell someone, smile, God loves you. Well, I can handle that. I think I can handle that one. That's good. Go tell someone, God will meet all your needs according to His riches and glory. Yeah, 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 I think I can relate that one, Lord. We would expect God to kind of work in increments. You know, I mean, you just don't take the kid out who's never ridden on a bicycle, take off the training wheels, and point him towards the double diamond course in the mountain biking park, right? You don't do that. You just kind of give him a chance to get broken in, right? Not necessarily. Listen to the first message that God gave this 12-year-old boy Samuel, by all accounts, to share. Then the Lord said to Samuel, verse 11, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, I know in our English translation we kind of go, that sounds delightful. You know, we all like a little tingling ear. I've got a confession to make to you. There is an addiction in my life. It's those Q-tips, you know, in the morning. It just, you're never supposed to put them in your ears, right? You know, I mean, it even says in the package, don't put that Q-tip in your ear because all kinds of bad things could happen. Oh, but I love that Q-tip in my ear. Anyway, we look at that and we go, oh, ear tingling. Oh, yeah, like a Q-tip in my ear. Right, oh, great, that'd be... No, that's not what the Hebrew says. The idea of your ears tingling there describes the same sensation that goes on in your ear canal when you are too close to a concussive explosion. You ever had like a ringing in your ears after like fireworks on the 4th of July? <laughs> you know, fireworks, here, let me, let me save you guys some grief. If you're going to go see fireworks, you know, like in every other event that you would want to go see, being as close as you can to the main event 
is kind of where you want to get. Except for church, where people get here early to sit in the back. I've never really figured that out. But, but if you're going to do fireworks, you would think that, man, just being right there where they're lighting the things, and poof, they go up and all this stuff, that'd be the greatest thing in the world. Well, you know, we went and took Sean when he was, I think, uh, a year and a half to see fireworks at the El Conquistador Resort. And boy, we got there early and we got right down there on that fairway and we were right there in front of the thing. And let me tell you something. The first one of those concussive things that goes up, you know, just the bright flash ones that just go boom like that, our evening was over. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure which was louder, the fireworks or Sean screaming about the fireworks. And I'm sure that when Sean is 45 years old, the 4th of July is still going to cause him to shake a little bit as a result of the experience. But I couldn't blame him because, man, after I walked away, even just being there that brief time, I had a ringing in my ears that lasted for about a day. You know, it's like one of those things where you're not thinking about anything. It's just that going on. That's what God said this message was going to do for the people of Israel. It's going to be like this concussive blast. Not a nice little ear tickling. Notice what was going to be so concussive. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his son made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. (laughs) Wow. Here's your first message, kid. Go to the guy who was a second father to you. Go to the guy who brought you up from three years of age to the age of 12. Nine years you've spent with this guy. Go to this guy who tenderly dealt with you, the kind of guy that you were so committed to that if you heard his voice, even at three in the morning, boom, you'd be up. Anything for you, Eli. Go to this guy and say, the other shoe has just dropped, Eli. God is judging you. Now, we look at this and we go, whoa, that is really heavy duty. That is really intense. And it was intense. But understand this, it wasn't the first time Eli heard that message. God had already sent another prophet to him and had gone into even more detail about this message. All this message that God was giving Samuel to share with Eli was was a confirmation of what God had already said. Very important insight here to hearing the voice of God. How do you discern the difference between the genuine article, God really speaking to a person, and a clever counterfeit? Have you ever been praying and just seeking the Lord and you just felt an impression on your heart like the Lord speaking something to you and then the next thought that entered your mind was, but how do I really know that's God? How do I really know that's God and not just my imagination? How do I know that's God and not just, you know, the wicked one dressed up like an angel of light leading me off the path? How do you know that you're really hearing from the Lord? Here I think we see a very important insight. When God speaks, please grasp this because this will save you untold grief in your life. When God speaks to a person personally, and I believe He speaks to people personally today, He will always speak in complete agreement with what He has already said right here in His Word. If someone comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, God has condemned your soul and He can't stand you when people like you dress like you and listen to music like you do. Thus say the Lord. (laughs) You laugh, but I have heard people drop bombs like that on others in the name of prophecy. If someone came to you and dropped a bomb like that on you, I guarantee you, at first you'd feel defensive and then secondly, you'd probably think, well, that person was a nut. But then... You know how paranoia works, like the old song says, paranoia strikes deep into your heart, it will creep, and you start saying, what if they're right? What if it is all over for me? What if God is done with me? What if I am condemned? Hey, I have seen Christians 
just go through their life defeated and dragging and thinking it's all over for them because one of these quote-unquote prophets has dropped that kind of bomb on them. How do you judge that? Here's how you judge it. Romans 8, 1 says what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there is therefore now no correction for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God chastises each and every person he receives as a child. God corrects, Satan condemns. There's a difference between correction and condemnation. Correction comes to us and says, you have made a mistake and this is what we need to do to correct it. Condemnation says, you are a mistake and there is no way it will ever be corrected. That's the difference between condemnation and correction. Correction is always loving. Correction is always restorative. Correction is always healing. Condemnation is always just, boom, out go the lights. Discernment. So important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Very important passage to have under your belt. If you're going to be about the business of hearing from the Lord, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 says this, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Now notice something. If someone comes to you and says, I've got a word from the Lord for you, and you listen to me, you go, well, okay, but I have to check that out. They go, blasphemy! You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You know that's the unforgivable sin, so you've got to listen to everything I say. Tell them to hit the road. They're false prophets. Because the Scripture says you are to test all things. How do you test them? You understand well enough what God has already said in His Word so that if someone comes to you with a revelation from the outside of His Word, you can see if it fits or not. Prophecy, I think, best understood is God personalizing the principles of His already divinely inspired Word, making them applicable directly to your life. But if someone comes to you and drops a condemnation bomb on you or starts saying, Thus saith the Lord, only those who save string will go to heaven. You know, you know what? Where'd that come from? Or you must be baptized in order to be saved. Thus saith the Lord. You go, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. The scripture doesn't teach you that. But you have to know the Scriptures, you see, in order to be able to discern these things. And oftentimes people say, well, you know, God's never given a word to me. Well, maybe God would give a word to you if you deepened your knowledge of His Word. The other thing you've got to understand is when God gives a word to somebody, and this is sort of an aside, but it's going to be worth the price of admission for you. When God gives a word to somebody, it's not so that you get addicted to words from the Lord. It's not so you sit around and say, well, I don't have to be in the Bible anymore. I'm just going to wait for someone to come up with a weird look on their face and say, thus saith the Lord. Or, no, I got a word from you. Or God really laid this truth on my heart. No, these things, if they are from God, are going to drive you more deeply into God's Word more deeply into an application of the principles of God's Word. If you become addicted to an experience rather than founding your life on the Word of God, you can also know that's not of the Lord. And that's why God wants you to have that foundation first. That's why God says, study to show yourself approved as a workman who needs not be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. You've got to have that foundation in your life. And so, Samuel's prophecy passes the test. It lined up precisely with what the Lord had already said. Now, here, God gives this message to Samuel. And it's dark, and the light's not up yet, and he's got all night to think about it. I think if you could have seen what was going on back then, you probably would have seen this dark area, this dark area around the tabernacle where everybody was sleeping, and everybody else is going to be snoring and sawing logs, and then you'd see two big eyes open in the dark. Because Samuel realized something. He was going to have to say something about this. Could you imagine dropping a bomb like that on someone you loved? Someone you were that committed to? Man, many of us would just say, uh, thanks Lord, I don't think I measure up in the prophet area, get somebody else to say that, I'm keeping this to myself. Samuel struggled, but passed is this test. Look at verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning, 
and open the doors of the house of the Lord. We almost get the feeling that Samuel's just trying to do business as usual here and hope the thing blows over. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, what is this thing the Lord has said to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things he said to you. <laughs> I bet Samuel was sitting there going, oh man, uh, do to me and more so if I don't tell you this, uh, I don't think I want to go there. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Could you imagine how Samuel felt at that moment? Saying that to Eli? Looking in Eli's face, wondering, you know, what's going to happen? What is this guy going to say? Is he going to kick me out of the tabernacle? I mean, you know, am I never going to be able to have a relationship with him again? Eli's response is interesting. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, I think this is tragic because here you see that the Bible never paints people in these total black and white pictures. I mean, Eli was a guy deserving of judgment because he honored his sons more than he honored the Lord and didn't restrain them and allowed the tabernacle of God to become a byword for religious abuse. And he was going to be judged. But here you also see that he did have a heart for God. He's saying, it's the Lord. I know it's the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is right. Sadly, though, that heart for the Lord didn't motivate him enough actually do anything to correct the situation. And I mean, here you see this tragically flawed human being in Eli just sort of receiving this thing from the Lord. And you know, here is another very important insight. When God speaks a word to us, inevitably it's a word that's meant to be shared. Inevitably it is something that God wants to use to encourage and relate to other people. And sometimes when God gives us things to share, it's not pleasant. Sometimes when God gives us things to share, you can offend people. Sometimes when God gives you something to say, you're not exactly going to get a pat on the back. You might even get a kick in the rear end as a result of it. So why share? Why not just kind of like Samuel was tempted to do, keep it to yourself? For one reason, it's not your word. It's not about your opinion. You know, when people will ask me sometimes, why do you teach through the Bible verse by verse? I'll tell you why. Because I'm chicken. <laughs> I mean, if we did a topical thing around here, I guarantee you I would gravitate towards the topical subjects that I found appealing and the things in, in the Word, you know, that I really, you know, find are my hobby horses. We just stay right on those. But you wouldn't get the whole counsel of the Word of God. You see, by teaching verse by verse, and this is what I mean by I'm chicken, if you've got a problem with this, take it up with the Lord. It's His Word. You know, I mean, there's enough things that you could probably have problems with me with personally. But as far as teaching goes, as we go through the Bible verse by verse and say, thus saith the Lord, and here it is, deal with it. Man, it takes a lot of pressure off of me. The Apostle Paul felt the same way. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Listen to what he said about the whole emphasis of his ministry, which rocked a few boats in its time. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 5, says this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. See, what Paul is saying is, we have nothing in it of ourselves that's valuable. It's the Word of God that's valuable. It's the Word of God that changes lives. We have that treasure in these earthen vessels. And the earthen vessel is nothing. It's like, like a picture frame around a masterpiece. I don't know if you've ever gone to the J. Paul Getty Museum in California. It's an incredible place especially the new complex they've built. It's right across the freeway from UCLA in Westwood. And you can't go up to the J. Paul Getty Museum by yourself. You have to buy tickets down there and they take you up on these trams and you go in there and there are just all of these incredible works of art there. I mean, you can spend just not even a day. You can spend weeks there just looking at all the different exhibits that they have. I guarantee you one thing, though. Nobody has ever paid the pretty hefty sum 
to go to the J. Paul Getty Museum to go look at picture frames. They go to see the paintings, right? I mean, a picture frame, if it's properly done, does one thing. It highlights the picture within it. It doesn't call attention to itself. That's what we are called to do as we share God's truth. We are the picture frame for it. We are not the whole deal. And if we are ministering properly, people don't walk away going, whoa, what a wonderful person. Wow, they were so dynamic. They walk away going, wow, the Word of God. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wonderful? That's the secret of real ministry. And that's what allowed Samuel to be able to share what he shared. And look at the results of this. Did God honor that commitment? Verses 19 through 21. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. What a, what a very Hebrew-esque, very poetic, picturesque way of saying that every word that Samuel spoke was inspired of the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 18 tells us that the mark of a true prophet is everything they say has to come to pass down to the smallest detail or you don't listen to them. It's not a 90%er. There's, there's a teaching that goes around in some churches that, yeah, you can have the gift of prophecy and you might get a few false prophecies mixed in while you're kind of getting you know, your wings and learning how to do it. But you know, you'll work the bugs out later. No. God didn't let a single word of Samuel's fall to the ground. That's what's true when we prophesy. And, I mean, this is sort of an aside, but if you ever get to the point where you feel like you're going to thus saith the Lord somebody, you better be awfully sure it's from the Lord. You better check it out scripturally yourself before you stand up and say something like that. Because God takes that very, very seriously. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Now notice something. Samuel didn't have to go around and market himself. Samuel didn't have to go around and say, send your money to the Samuel Evangelistic and Prophecy Crusade. It was God who gave him the ministry. And it was from Dan to Beersheba. God even set up the parameters of his ministry. And this is such a relief. Uh, believe it or not, uh, there are times when we pastors get a little bit carnal. Uh, I, I know that probably shocks and surprises, but even in Calvary Chapel circles, you know, I go to these pastors' conferences, you know, you talk to these other pastors, the first question they ask you is, uh, so how's things going? And you go, oh, good, the Lord's doing good things. The next question they always ask is, how many you got? How many I got? I was looking at him and saying, well, I don't got any of them. I mean, they're God's people. No, 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 I know that. And, you know, and they're going, oh, he's theologically splitting hairs here. But, you know, what's your attendance like? I mean, come on, how many people are showing up? Why in the world would we ever use that as a gauge of spirituality? I mean, you can have a million-man march on the mall in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the black Muslims, and that's no guarantee that their doctrine's true. I mean, filling seats has nothing to do with the real work of God. It's filling hearts that really matters. But let God set that up. Man, God may have just incredible ministry for you. Maybe God has a big ministry for you. Heaven help you if He does. It's a lot easier when it's small. But God may have a wide circle of influence for you. He may have a small circle of influence for you. But I guarantee you, if you're doing what God's called you to do, you'll be happy. You'll be content. You'll have peace. It's when we start to try to push beyond all of that that I think we get into trouble. God set those parameters. And then look finally, then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This whole famine of hearing of the words of the Lord was wiped away in a day because there was one person who was faithful enough to stand up and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. You want to hear from God. You want to be a person that God speaks to. You want to have that depth of intimacy and nearness and closeness in your relationship with Him. Make that your prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And if you need a word from the Lord, understand you got it. And if God just says, you stay in my word, you stay faithful to be in my word, 
These last days, Hebrews chapter 1 says, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. That is far better than any prophecy. Jesus, looking at Him. And if you're looking at Jesus and you're basing your relationship with God on the Word of God, and God needs to give you a word, He'll give you a word. But understand this, if He gives you a word beyond all that, it's probably not a compliment. It's probably because you're about to miss something real good. Because you're a little thick up here. How do I know that? I know that because the most dramatic word of the Lord I've ever received that really fits into this category, a word of prophecy, happened to me when I was about to pass on, I think, something that ended up being the greatest relationship I ever needed to into my life, aside from my relationship with my Lord. And that was my relationship with Pam. God sent a woman I'd never met before to come to me and share with me when I was really just struggling about whether I could trust anybody ever again in a relationship. An amazing statement. If you decide to get married again, it's going to be what God had for you all the way along. And I went, oh, that's nice. But then God backed it up. This woman, who I'd never met before, then gave me a blow-by-blow description of the last 12 years of my life. And all the painful things I had gone through that had brought me to that point and it had so locked up my soul. And when I walked away from that, I realized something. It wasn't deep. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't what I would call theologically dense. But it was profound. I remember driving away from that session and realizing that there I had the greatest blessing aside from salvation itself sitting right in front of me and I needed to take advantage of that. That is the relationship I have with Pam. I realized something else and I said it to God. I I remember driving home and having to pull off on the freeway because I was so choked up with tears and all I could say to God was, He knew. He knew. He knew everything I went through. You were there. You felt my pain. You were... You, you, you walked with me through all of that. You never left me and never forsook me. Could I have learned that from the Word of God? Absolutely I could have learned that from the Word of God. Could I have seen that a woman like Pam who loves the Lord was a great person to spend the rest of my life with just looking at the scriptural qualifications for being a wife? You better believe I could have. But God saw I was such a knucklehead and I was so bound by fear that I needed a miracle to shake me out of all of it. And it's an awesome thing, and I'll never forget it. But understand something. It just made me realize once again that everything we need for life and godliness is right here in the Word. It's all here with Jesus. And if you need a miraculous sign, you've got it. And if you need a word from the Lord, you've got that. Don't chase them. Jesus said, these signs and wonders will follow those who believe in Mark chapter 16. He didn't say those who believe would follow signs and wonders. If you stay faithful, stay grounded in the Word, stay committed to your times of prayer, deepening your relationship with the Lord, letting the love of the Lord overflow you, and then anything you need to hear from God, you're going to hear because you're going to be on the right frequency. Let's pray. Father, thanks. That when we speak, you hear. I pray the same would be true for us. That when you speak, we hear. And that we would hear with willing hearts, ready to obey. Not picking and choosing. Not saying, well, I think I'll get into that, but I won't get into the other. Or, yeah, Lord, I'll obey you here, but I won't obey you over here. Lord, we want you to be Lord indeed. We don't want Lord Jesus Christ just to be something we call you as your first name. We want it to be reality. Be Lord for us. 